One of the most notable things about the 21st century is that people cannot get enough hero stories. Fictional hero movies make by far the most money. The most popular RPGs revolve around some noble character. Top-selling books of the 21st century have all been based on some fictional heroine. And think about this. Those heroes are always placed in a meticulously developed history. Uh, Middle Earth, uh, Narnia, the, uh, the Russian metro system, uh, the 12 districts after a civil war of Pan Am. What, wherever the fantasy story is located, the contextual details of history and language, they're very, very important. And we know them, don't we? Cold stone. We know facts about fictional heroes and their history. These are embedded in our minds. For example, what is the name of the heroine of the Hunger Games on Pan Am? What's her name? Katniss Everdeen. It's amazing how everyone knows that. Looking at this map, Take a look at this map. Where did the hobbits develop their society? Let me just make it a multiple choice. Was it in Gondor, Mordor, uh, Rovanian, east side of the Misty Mountains, Rohan, or Eriador? Which was the area where the hobbits developed? Yeah, the west. What was the name of this little area right here where they developed? The Shire, right? The Shire. We know these things. One more. What city is home to Wayne Enterprises and the Batman? Gotham City. Now stop and think about this for a minute. Why is that so? What is behind this phenomenon that demands stories with, with strong heroes and, and a meticulous historic context? Why do most people today, nearly everyone today, knows these heroes and their histories so well? Here's one major reason. One major reason, I think, and this is very sad, but I think it's true, is that daily life in our world lacks any heroic historic context. By the way, that's the headline you'll find in our notes. If, you, if you're online, download it online, uh, or if you came in today, you can look inside your bulletin. You'll see that headline, Daily Life in the World Today Lacks Any Heroic Historic Context. History is unknown, unstudied, and or deconstructed to the point of nonsense. Heroes are either non-existent or they are redefined to include everybody. It's true, isn't it? Because of this, people don't have any clue about the real-life historic context, the real-life heroism that is part of daily living. Other people, of course. I'm talking about other people. I mean, thank goodness we're not like that at all. Huh. Yeah. Probably, probably the only people who are exempt from today's general ignorance are those of you who have gone through naturalized citizenship. Um, in my country, the United States, uh, naturalized citizens exhibit a much better understanding of historic context and heroism than the majority of their fellow citizens. Let me show you. For example, let's see how each of us do on this. I have here a copy of the current U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services uh, Civics exam. I have selected just six little questions from this. Let's see how we do, shall we? Don't give your answers out loud so that you don't hurt other people with your ignorance. I mean, help other people. All right, here we go. What is the supreme law of the land? I've had that up for a few seconds now. You should have that in your head. What is the supreme law of the land? The answer is the Constitution. 54% of the U.S. citizens who were born on American soil missed that question, according to a 2018 Wilson Foundation survey. Here's another one. Uh, when was the U.S. Constitution ratified? And I did something they don't do on here. I actually give you multiple choice. 1776, 1783, 1788, 1805. Which one is the correct answer? Don't say it out loud. Have you got your answer? Is that your final answer? In honor of Regis Philbin's passing, is that your final answer? All right. The correct answer is 1788. 
Oops, yeah. Uh, 87% of U.S.-born citizens missed that one. By the way, most of them said 1776, which is what document instead, boys and girls? Declaration of Independence. Very good. All right. Uh, Name one right or freedom that is mentioned in the First Amendment. What is one of the First Amendment rights? Okay. You You should have a pretty good chance. There are five of them. Speech, religion, assembly, press, and to petition the government. Unless you're in a church in California or Nevada or a synagogue in New York. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. I just couldn't help it. All right. The next one said, name one thing for which Ben Franklin is famous. What is Benjamin Franklin famous for? What is he known for? There were a number of things that any of these were acceptable on the, on the test. You could say he was the writer of Poor Richard's Almanac. He published academic articles on natural science, including the fact that there was electricity in lightning. That was one of his most famous papers. Um, he was U.S. diplomat. He was the oldest member of the Constitutional Convention. He was the first postmaster general of the United States, and he started the first free lending libraries. Um, by the way, that was None of those answers was given by 76% of U.S.-born citizens. And this is my favorite part. 37% said he invented the light bulb. <laughs> Poor Thomas Edison. He never gets any love. All right. Um, who is the father of our country? Who is the father of our country? Go ahead. You can say this one. George Washington. 50% of U.S.-born citizens missed that. Missed that. Yep. Um, And then one more, uh, which countries did the U.S. fight in World War II? Uh, The right answer they're looking for are three, uh, Germany and whom, everybody? Japan and Italy. That's right. Extra credit if you said uh, Romania, Bulgaria, and Hungary, because they did join the Axis powers, but we never actually fought them, so they didn't list it on the answer. Did you miss any? Raise your hand if you missed any of the questions. Raise your hand. Just about every hand. Okay. All right. Most people do. I think the best comment on our sad lack of heroic and historic context uh, came from an NBC story. Uh, This was a recent NBC television story. The reporter was um, Alison Escobar. I liked this so much I put it in your notes. Here's what she said. She said, Johan Garcia, a young Mexican immigrant, said that some U.S.-born youth tend to tune out when it comes to politics or policy. Most young people are uninformed about important issues. They base their opinions on what they see or read on social media said Garcia, who teaches citizenship classes in the Bronx. We need to find a way to revive disciplines like history, philosophy, and ethics to better prepare our leaders of tomorrow, not only to make ethical decisions, but also to know what it means to be an active and productive member of society, close quote. Garcia is right. And if that isn't achieved, we will continue to spiral downward in a cycle that would be funny if it weren't so ridiculous. We make up legions of fake heroes with specific histories precisely because we are totally unmoored from our real history and real heroism. This is why more people mourned Tony Stark's death than ever mourned any real-life passing in human history. Serious mourning. I don't know if any modern cultures will recapture the power of genuinely contextual history and heroism. I do know Christians can. Christians can. Because for millennia, the churches of Jesus have offered a better way. Open your Bible, please. 1 Peter chapter 1. Instead of just fake heroes, which can be fine, here's what God offers. 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter 1, we're immersed in the great heroic historic context. Let's read verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, I'll give you that context in a moment. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated 
They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Now, the context is pretty tidy. Peter starts by discussing the, uh, the future awards that are awaiting believers in Jesus. That's verses 3 through 5 of chapter 1. And, and then he talks in verses 6 through 9 about the joys we have in the present, even during persecution. And then the part that we just read, the blessings that come to us from those who have gone before, that come to us from the past. Two really important ideas make up verses 10 through 12. First, the faith ancestors labored for you, for you. The prophets spoke on behalf of the people who would follow them. They worked and they believed and they died for the truth of grace that would change the world. And they did so without ever seeing the fruits themselves. This is the kind of activity for which um, a 20th century psychologist, Eric Erickson, uh, made up a word. He didn't think there was a good enough word, so he made up a word in English. He's a brilliant man, uh, professor emeritus at Yale, although he never, had, he never earned a bachelor's degree at all. Um, not everything he wrote is great, but he did say some pretty intriguing things. And this is one of my favorite words he made up. It's your fancy word for the day. Boys and girls, you get to say generativity on the count of three. It's just fun to say, generativity. It's like kinkajou. It's just fun. All right, on the count of three, generativity. One, two, three. Generativity is selfless service for no personal reward except this. The satisfaction of knowing that you're blessing those who are going to follow you. Generativity. Generativity. You don't personally know Isaiah, but 2,500 years before your birth, Isaiah worked for you. 3,500 years before our time, Moses labored for you. 4,000 years ago, Abraham's vision in the stars included you. Regarding the grace that has come to us, the prophet's generativity can be summarized in the immortal words of Squints Paladoras, been planning it for years, right? When, when you prepare a space in your home for a baby or for a foster child, you're imitating those who came before you. Now, hopefully, those kids are going to grow up and appreciate that you labored for their good. Hopefully, we do the same for our forebears. That does not mean that ancestors are perfect. Far from it. We each have areas that continually need to be changed, right? To appreciate the generativity of those who preceded us, I don't need to whitewash their flaws or make them into idols. Think, just think about the faith ancestors to whom Peter is referring here. Moses, Moses was a murderer. Abraham, a liar many times over. Let's throw in Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. And Peter, the person that the Holy Spirit of God used to give us this text, Peter was himself an angry, group-thinking racist. He was a racist. Peter isn't teaching us to pretend that those mere humans who worked for our good were perfect. That's ridiculous. But he is teaching us to appreciate and honor the sacrifices of those who went before, sacrifices that have led to our present blessings. When I outlined this study months ago, I had no idea that the presentation today would come in the midst of a global spree that is committed to erasing our past. I had no idea this was going to be the day I would teach. But since we are at this moment in time, let's apply 1 Peter 1, let's apply it just to our modern spiritual history. All right, let's go to the beginning of the modern era. God used a guy named Martin Luther to inspire spiritual and political freedom for millions of people. And yet, 
Luther grew anti-Semitic in his later years. Ugly anti-Semitism. Rather than tear down his statues, 1 Peter calls us to give thanks for his blessings to posterity while also committing to work against his cursings, right? Let's go a little closer in history. We'll use the same name, Martin Luther King Jr. He led the way to social and economic freedom for millions of people, and yet he was apparently a serial adulterer. And he is accused by a number of witnesses of of watching a rape without doing anything to intervene. Now, instead of canceling his holiday, how about praising God for all the good that he bequeathed to us while also renewing our commitment to marital morality? I ran all this past, I, I know this is a hot topic right now, so I ran it past some friends of mine, all of whom are under 15 years old. And one of them asked me, why is this such a big deal? By the way, one of the others said I should imitate Gru from Despicable Me during this sermon, so we're going to combine the two, all right? I know in your Gru voice you are asking, why is this such a big deal, right? Why? Great question, Gru. Thank you. Here's why. History, especially biblical history, is a remarkable resource that cannot be overvalued. Look, even angels fathom, they, they, they would love to fathom the greatness of this resource. That's the second big idea here. Angels long to look into this. Isn't that incredible? To you is revealed truth that is hidden to angels, holy angels who have no fleshly nature. They cannot fathom the things shown to you. Now, I know there's likely some adult right now who relates to the angels. I can tell you that when I said I talked to kids under 15, there was some adult who was muttering in his Dr. Nefario voice, why talk with young men? I would have loved, I know, don't cry, it's okay. I would have loved to discuss the passage before the sermon with you. Yes, Dr. Nefario, and your thoughts would have been great, but for reasons of my own, I wanted a middle school dialogue on this issue. And that is possibly close to what Peter's describing. Angels want to know about these things, but they can't until God reveals it at the appointed time. God shares history, his story, the heroic historic context of life with us, a bunch of kids instead. By the way, the phrase, these things, in the text, I should tell you this, it's very hotly debated. Um, it may be specifically referring to grace, the, the astonishing idea that God rescues undeserving human beings. But there are some scholars who think the sentence structure argues otherwise. The angels could instead be absolutely befuddled by the whole idea of space-time. That could be what it's saying. Or they could be completely nonplussed by how people in prior eras would work so hard for those who would come after them. But in every case... Whatever these things means, it's clear that God wants us to do what angels can't. He wants us to examine the work of our forebears and learn from it. We can thereby refine our relationship with those who went before. Now, anybody here ever struggled with your own physical ancestry? You ever feel like Ziggy in this cartoon? According to Ancestry.com, I come from a long line of village idiots. <laughs> Seriously, did you grow up without a father? Was there abuse or neglect? Are, are you ashamed? Your grandpa was a terrorist. Your aunt was in jail. Please, please listen carefully. Take the bag off your head. You and I are not merely defined by earthly family. Thank God we are liberated from that. We are connected to a long line of people who put their hope in God's grace. Again, except for Jesus, those people aren't any more perfect than your broken earthly family is. But they do offer a way ahead. In a world 
that lacks any historic context. In a world where indulgence and sin are exalted as heroic. In a world where fake heroes cannot fill the void in humans longing for patterns to follow. God provides an amazing resource in those who went before. The great heroic context waits for humble miners who will dig in and grow rich. Thank you, Don LaFontaine speaks from the grave. All right, you ready? So since that's true, let's dig in. On the right side of our notes, right side of our notes, you'll see a brief synopsis of what the Bible says regarding the traits of worthy heroes. First, they're real. This is a problem with Tony Stark or Superman. They aren't real. That's why they always look so perfect. That's why they always look so powerful. They're fake. Nothing, nothing against fictional heroes. They are useful. In fact, fictional heroes are important, but they can muddy the context of life. So we suddenly begin to think over time that no real human being has anything good to offer. This is one reason why parents matter so much to children. Um, look up here, Proverbs chapter 6. I'd like you to read with me. Verses 20 through 23, you join me on the underlined text. My son, keep your father's command. Don't reject your mother's teaching. Always bind them to your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk here and there, they will guide you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you wake up, they will talk to you. For a command is a lamp. Teaching is a light, and corrective discipline is the weight of life. Very, very good. Good parents set the right example. They establish a generative, a, a sacrificial, heroic context for their kids. Wise kids keep that example in mind. They, they bind it around their, their heart, around their head. Now, I know, of course, every single generation that has ever lived has thought that they are the answer to all the world's problems, and their parents were deluded, benighted fools, right? But wise people... They grow up, and they hang on to what is good about their parents' instruction. We need real heroes, not fictional ones. One of my heroes is Dr. James Kane of the Mayo Clinic. I read a book about him when I was a kid, and I've always thought he was amazing. Head of internal medicine at the Mayo Clinic because of the fame of that clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and because Dr. Kane was the personal physician to a U.S. president, to Lyndon Johnson, there were dozens and dozens of young doctors all around the world that always wanted to come and fellowship. They always wanted to work for Dr. Kane. And for a while, he always struggled with, with how to pick the best ones for his clinic, because they were all eager, they were all brilliant, they were all very hardworking, they were dedicated. So how could he decide? And it was in a series of conversations with LBJ that he actually hit on the solution. Here's what Dr. Kane did. Every single young doctor that came to him wanted to work. He said, tell me about your heroes, doctor. And then they would talk. And if they didn't have any real-life heroes, and for a lot of them it was only fictional, if they didn't have any real-life heroes, he realized that their values were underdeveloped. They had not learned how to hang good ideas around their neck. Who are your heroes? All right, turn your Bible a few pages to the left, just a few pages to the left to Hebrews 11. We'll spend the rest of our time in Hebrews 11. Just go to the west a couple of pages. Uh, let's read Hebrews 11, 4 through 6. Hebrews 11, 4 through 6. By faith, Abel offered <clears throat> to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. And even though Abel is dead, he still speaks through his faith. By faith, Enoch was taken away, and so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. A quote from Genesis 5. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Stop there. This is the beginning of the, of the great hall of fame of faith. And, and the bottom line's right there. You operate by God's grace through faith. The people in the hall of fame had faith. Notice, Abel still speaks. What a beautiful way to depict the heroic and historic context that molds us today. He still speaks. And what does he say? Abel and Enoch say that to be heroic, you've got to believe in God. You've got to receive his grace. Do great things, yes, but not by your own power. Do great things through faith in the Lord. The Apostle Paul is going to develop this theme even further throughout the New Testament. We change the world by God's grace through faith, through trusting him. Abel looks like a loser. Okay, he does. He gets killed. Enoch looks like a dropout. But you know what? Cain doesn't speak anymore. And the people who drowned after Enoch was translated, they... They don't have any influence on modern world, but Abel and Enoch do. They still speak, and they say that worthy heroes trust God, not themselves. They operate by God's grace through faith. All God's people said? Slide down a little bit further. Go to verse 13, Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all, he's finished a lot of the list of the Hall of Fame. These all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The writer finishes this brief Hall of Fame, and he points out the way that worthy heroes look beyond earthly success. Last time I introduced you to this guy, um, my old friend Fred Smith, a magnificent businessman. Fred spoke a great deal about how earthly success cannot last. Your earthly success will not satisfy unless you are looking beyond it to something better. Commenting on Hebrews 11, uh, verse 16, uh, Fred told this story. It's one of my favorite stories of his. A discerning investor I know was having lunch with a young man who had recently been made CEO of a corporation. He asked the young executive to talk of his heroes. The young man named a ruthless military leader and an arrogant, short-sighted executive. The conversation turned cool. Later, the investor told me, what a shame to turn an organization over to such immaturity. Because of his impression of the CEO, my friend sold his large block of stock which proved to be a very wise decision. Folks, the people who make real and lasting difference are not like that young CEO. They look beyond earthly success. Their values are more than just winning at all costs, and that's what makes them worthy of investment. Read the next three verses, uh, verse uh, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac, a quote from Genesis 21. He considered God to be able to raise even someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. Real heroes sacrifice. Abraham was willing to give up what mattered most to him because he trusted that God would take care of whatever concerned him. It is heroic to sacrifice. That's why Fran Legband uh, of our pulpit team likes to say, all true leaders walk with a limp. It's another reason fictional heroes have become so popular. People in the Western world have become really adverse to sacrifice, so it's hard to find real-life examples of generative sacrifice. In her wizarding world, uh, Joan Rowling developed this concept that the most powerful magic possible is a parent's sacrifice for her child. That's what saves Harry Potter. Sorry, spoiler alert, 21 years later. That's what saves Harry Potter, all right? It's brilliant. 
But Lily Potter's self-sacrifice had such an outsized impact on the modern culture precisely because back in the 20th century, the, the culture became marked by a lack of personal sacrifice. Look, starting back in the late 1940s, Parents in mainstream society begin to excuse themselves from parenting responsibilities more and more. Basic responsibilities like like caring for your marriage or spending time shepherding each child. These things were ignored or they were redefined in order to make sure that there was less and less and less personal sacrifice. By contrast, I was very blessed to grow up in a home with parents who were all about sacrifice, inspired by Scripture. My dad, my dad was totally committed. The guy went to work at 5 a.m. every morning. He came home, he took a bath, cleaned up, and then he came out and he wrestled with us every single night until dinner time. I cannot remember a single night of my childhood except when we had a ball game that he was not on the floor wrestling around with us. And my brother was overdoing it and getting us in trouble nearly every time. Just want to share that, Bob. Uh, Anyway, sorry. I say that out loud. I apologize. Heroes, the people who perpetuate the blessings that God passed down to them. Heroes, they sacrifice. They're, They're real. They operate by grace through faith. They look beyond earthly success and they sacrifice. Now, let's look at the other aspect of the heroic historic context, in order to rightly relate to those who precede us, let's examine how to be shaped by history. First thing, humbly work at it. Look again, we already read 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when He testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Our forefathers worked they searched, and they studied, and they examined God's pattern. And I know, I know many of you right now are thinking in your, in your Miss Hattie imitation, but darling, I don't like to read. It's too hard. It's just too hard to read, and history's just boring. I understand. Actually, I don't. I, I really don't. As, as my dad likes to say, I feel for you, but I just can't reach you. Um, you're, telling me, you're telling me that you have this amazing resource. You have the past right at your fingertips. And you don't use it because it's too hard to learn? That that would be like saying that you choose to crawl on your belly because it's just too much effort to move in an upright position. You have this amazing resource called legs. Use them. There are two main reasons that people crawl in ignorance instead of learning to walk through the past. Two main reasons. Number one, they, they haven't been taught well or they haven't learned well. And number two, they lack humility. I know. There's a lot of people who have learned history from boring teachers, or they try to learn on their own. They go get at the library some heavy tome that is heavy to carry and requires a master's degree to get through the preface, right? There is a better way. Can I just take a minute and be very practical with you? Here's how I learned. Look, with any new topic I want to examine, especially a history topic or a science topic, I start online. That is fine. That is fine. Get a feel for the big ideas. Go online. Um, search into, you can even start looking at some of the debates, at least the ones that Google doesn't, doesn't censor. You can, you can start looking through. Then once you've got a fairly good idea for some of the big ideas, then get a child's book about the topic. Get some book written for children about whatever it is you're trying to learn. Here's what will happen. It's probably better written than anything written for adults. 
uh, it's, it's a harder market to get into, so they tend to be better writers. Uh, that's why I don't write children's books. Um, and, and, and you will get, in a distilled fashion, you will get a big picture of what's going on. Then you can move up to the more full accounts. You can read, you can think, make notes, turn to the... Here's what I do. I, I make notes all the way through. If you ever borrow one of my books, here's what the notes mean, okay? If you see, if you see, um, if you see one check mark, that means I am bored. And I'm giving the author notice that I'm not staying with you much longer. This better pick up, right? If you see two check marks, I'm thinking, hmm, that's pretty cool. I like that. If you see three check marks, that means I don't agree. But I want to come back and think about that later because you might be right. I, I could be wrong. Uh, so I'm not sure. So I put three check marks by that. If you see four check marks, that means this is going to appear in a sermon. That's what it means. That's the system. And then you dog-ear the pages of the ones that you really, really like, and you write a little summary up there. This is how you remember it. You write a little summary. I know, you're dying. Writing in books. <laughs> the, the, uh, again, my brother, it's okay to write in books, Bob. Um, the, um, <clears throat> you, you can talk to me later. You just write a little summary up there. And then when you've read some books that are, that are adult books and you're getting a, a better grasp on the subject, then you can go to things like, uh, things like original resources. You can go to journals. You can go to primary accounts. You can read the diaries of the people who were involved. So, for example, when the 200th anniversary, the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition was coming up, I thought, you know what? I want to know more about that than just what I learned in fifth grade, so, so I'm going to do some reading. Well, I, I, the first thing I did was I got a kid's book, right? I mean, I went online, I looked at some of the stuff. The U.S. had some pretty cool stuff from the government. And then I got this little book. This is uh, Lewis and Clark and Me. It's an excellent book. It's written from the perspective of, of Dr. Uh, Lewis's dog. Picked up, a, picked up a dog in St. Louis, a huge Newfoundland, beautiful illustrations. And by the way, the dog appears in all the journals, and uh, he's really a big part of the expedition. And, and it's written from his perspective, and I got a pretty good feel. And then I went and got the classic that I bet a bunch of you have read, New York Times bestseller, uh, Stephen Ambrose, Undaunted Courage. Great book that, that gave me a pretty good feel for the whole, the whole thing. And he, he wrote well. And this is a guy who knew what he was talking about. His family, their vacation every summer for over 20 years was camping along the Lewis and Clark Trail in the western United States. He was a college prof, so he didn't really work. He had time to do that. And um, <laughs> she like that? Yeah. And, uh, and then, I, I, then I had a feel for what was going on, so I thought, okay, I want to read their diaries. So I went and got a copy of the, the journals of Lewis and Clark, which are absolutely fascinating. And, and I chose to get one where the spelling wasn't corrected because I think that's most intriguing. You know, spelling wasn't really codified hard until about 1815. That's why a lot of scholars will consider the modern era starts about 1815. Two things in 1815 that were big, big deals for the modern era. Uh, men's clothing became standardized. Before that, pants were not really all we, they, they were different things, pantaloons and other stuff. So men's clothing hasn't changed in 200 years. Thank God. Let's keep it that way. Um, poor girls. Um, and then the spelling was, was codified. So I started reading these. So I put it all together then. I got done with the project. It took a couple weeks. Had a lot of fun. And then I, I took time to go back and say, well, what, what did I learn? And I went and looked at all my dog years, and these were the three big takeaways I had from that. This is how you learn from those who've gone before you. First thing I learned was the foundation of a great partnership is competency and trustworthiness. Got to have both. Second, powerful unity. Powerful unity can be experienced in a team, and here we're going to use Captain Lewis's phrase, zealously attached to the enterprise. And then the third is a quote from Stephen Ambrose, says it much better than I ever could, well-led people working together can do far more than they ever thought they could. All right? I'm a better person because of those lessons, because I refined my relationship with those who went before me. 
The point is to learn. Don't, don't think you have to know it all immediately. Don't be intimidated by your bad experiences. Don't be like most deaf in the Italian job. I had a bad experience. You, take time. Take time to, to fill in the blank spaces in your understanding. That's how you overcome the learning problem. The other problem is humility. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 reminds us of this. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. It was written for us so we could be encouraged, so we could grow. But growth takes humility. People who sit in continual judgment on the persons of the past, those judgers cannot and will not grow. Careful discernment is great. Careful discernment is great. But generational hubris, looking down on everyone who came before, that, that is absurd. They didn't reach our pinnacle of evolution. We are the top of the heap. That is, frankly, that's hilarious. Not too long ago, I received a very angry, very angry email from a listener to our podcast um, who was furious that I quoted Thomas Jefferson. I read his letter, I prayed, and I I wrote back a a measured response asking him whether he didn't think he was in danger of, of generational hubris. Here's what I wrote. I said, while Jefferson's slave owning is truly wicked, that doesn't make everything he said useless. Do, do you want future generations to learn from you or just throw out all of your efforts because of some ugly flaw that, that wasn't as visible in your era as it is to them then? This was the very sad reply, and I quote, You will drop any mention of that man or any other slave owner, or I will never listen again. I will do everything I can to destroy your name and ministry. Close quote. Now, following Solomon's advice about not talking to angry people, I didn't answer him. Oh, and by the way, he lied. I received more complaints from him in the months to come. So he was a liar anyway. It doesn't matter. How can I learn from those who came before? Humbly work at it. And that humility takes us to a very important reminder. Consider your own mistakes. Remember how I said Peter struggled? Remember Peter struggled with groupthink and racism? Here's an example of that. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul's writing. He says, but when Kephas, um, that's that's Greek for head, it it means Peter. When, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those of the circumcision party. Peter got smacked in the back of the head by Paul. And by the way, Peter responded well. He changed. He would end his life saying this. Here's how Peter would end his life. 2 Peter chapter 3, therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, and the context is coming glory in Jesus, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul, dear brother Paul, not that stinking guy who made me look bad in front of people. Our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. We must learn from our own failures and appreciate those who smack us in the back of the head. It grants us resolve and humility. Disney absolutely nailed this idea in their 1994 movie, The Lion King. Look and listen. What was that? (laughs) The weather, (laughs) very peculiar, don't you think? Yeah, looks like the winds are changing. Ah, change is good. Yeah, but it's not easy. I know what I have to do, but 
Going back means I'll have to face my past. I've been running from it for so long. Ow! Jeez, what was that for? It doesn't matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can hurt. But the way I see it, you can either run from it or learn from it. Ah, you see? So what are you going to do? First, I'm going to take your stick. No, 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 not your stick. Hey, where are you going? I'm going back. Good stuff. That is good. Two more notes. Real quickly, two more notes to cover. Do you want a right relationship with the past? Don't worship people. It's a major part of the Old Testament commands. You shall make no graven image, right? And it's particularly fascinating how Hebrews, the book you're in right now, unpacks this idea. Look at the, the start of the very next chapter, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, think, please think. Having just completed this call to learn from the heroes of faith, chapter 11, don't you expect chapter 12 to read differently? Here's what, here's what you expect. Therefore, since we have this great crowd, this resource of our predecessors, fix your eyes on them. That's what we anticipate. But the text says, focus on whom, everybody? Who does it say to focus on? Jesus. To do otherwise is to violate the very thing our heroes exalt. We've got to worship only one person, God the Son. He is the ultimate author. He is the progenitor of all the stories. We can and should learn from Isaiah and Rahab and Peter, but we should worship only Jesus. If you want to move ahead in a right relationship with what has come before you, then you've got to fix your eyes on Christ Jesus alone. Our sister in Christ, Alveda King, spoke to this. Um, 2020, she was discussing the mania for tearing down statues in America, and she said this really brilliant quote. Alveda King, she's the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She said, statues can be idols. Some people idolize Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Some people admire Martin Luther King Jr. Some people hate Martin Luther King Jr. and would tear his statue down. Why don't, Alveda King says, why don't we leave them all up and find out why they were there and what we can learn from them without idolizing them? Close quote. She's right. We mustn't miss the great heroic context of life on earth, especially not our spiritual history. Both positive and negative things are part of that, and we need to learn from both, but we must not make idols of any humans. All God's people said. Here's my last thought. Thank God that your inclusion is desired. That's what the very end of chapter 11 declares. Go to verse 39. All these, talking about the Hall of Fame of Faith, they were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. This is an astounding concept. Those who trusted God before were in a sense waiting for us. They were waiting for the cross. They were trusting God's promised salvation. But there, there's even more here. God writes in verse 40, these heroes of the faith are waiting for our inclusion. Now, lest you get the wrong impression and think that I'm saying fictional heroes are worthless, I want you to listen to a short scene from Tolkien's Return of the King. Okay? Theoden, the king of Rohan, he allowed himself to, to become foolish. He was, he was badly deceived. And yet in the end, 
He, he turns around through some good smack on the head intervention. He turns around and he comes and he fights for right and he fights for goodness. He is mortally wounded on a field of victory. And he says this to the hobbit Mary. He says this to Mary, which in the film they changed to Eowyn. May God forgive them. Anyway, um, it's fine. It's totally fine. Then Mary stooped and lifted his Theoden's hand to kiss it. And lo, Theoden opened his eyes and they were clear. And he spoke in a quiet voice, though labored. Farewell, Master Holbeetla. He said, my body is broken. I go to my father's. And even in their mighty company, I shall not now be ashamed. I felled the black serpent. A grim morn, a glad day and a golden sunset, close quote. Professor Tolkien is getting to the heart of verse 40 right there. It's like a naturalization ceremony. Your inclusion is desired. Whatever your past mistakes, you can change by God's grace through faith. And then in the mighty company of Hebrews chapter 11, you will not be ashamed. Pray with me, pray with me, please. Father, I want to pray, first of all, for anyone studying with us that has never trusted Jesus as Savior. If, if, they, if they have any kind of developed conscience, if they have any sense of your Holy Spirit working, they know, as, as all humans do, that they are flawed. And thus they feel very separated. And the pain of the past is mighty. I beg you to reach through that. And to help them see that their company is desired. Friend, Jesus died on the cross willingly with you in mind. That's what the text tells us. He wanted you. God desires all to believe on him. If you've never done so right now, quit trusting whatever it is you're trusting. Quit idolizing all of the idols that we so easily create. And trust Jesus, the only trustworthy Savior. He made a way for you. He died to pay for your sin and rose from the dead so that if you believe on him, you have everlasting life. Trust him right now. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, if you're elsewhere besides here, please write us. We'd love to pray for you and praise God for you. If you're here in the room, raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying, but just raise your hand and look up here. Let me rejoice with you. Good. Father, I pray for all these believers in Jesus, both new and old, that we will learn and we will grow from our faith fathers who desire us in their august company. In Jesus' name, amen.